Hallelujah. Praise you, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this day. In your providence, which falls on the end of this year as we mark our calendars, and it prompts us to recall for those of us who know you and have experienced the blessing of God overflowing in our lives, the promises of the gospel realized in our confession and in your keeping through this year, Lord, and the overflowing blessings so far beyond anything we could sometimes dare to ask, and certainly what we deserve. We thank you, God, that we have a million reasons and more to worship you and praise you this Lord's day, this your day. We thank you that you have provided this opportunity with your people to pool our affections and to offer our praise together before you. And our prayer is, Lord, that it would be a sweet-smelling incense to you. Lord, confessions of thanks and worship from these feeble throats, may they, be, may they be blessed and multiplied to bless your ears and to lift up and exalt your holy name. And now as we turn to your scriptures, we confess that your word is the ground underneath our feet and that to the degree that we have stood even a single day in the faith, it is because of the truth forever established in your word, in your proclamation that does not wither, fail, or fade. And your word is our anchor. It is our mooring post in a sea of uncertainty, in days of darkness where the sin of those around might ebb and flow. We have a Christ who stands forever glorified in heaven, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. We ask this day as we turn our attention once again to your holy word, that you would Draw from it for us by your Spirit's use of these means today, language for worship, as well as foundation stones for your call for us in the future. Even as we pray that those who do not know you would be drawn by your Spirit to confession and faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask and pray for all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. Amen. Praise God. What a glorious gift and opportunity the Lord has given us today to share together in His Word, to consider the Scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the Word, considering verses 38 through 42. Matthew 12, 38 through 42. This morning, we have a final message from the book of Jonah, which we've covered in our preaching series to date, and as I often like to do at the close of a book, today is an overview sermon, a summary and takeaways from the book of Jonah for us. In light of the unique challenge of this message, we'll be covering more scripture than usual, so I just ask for your attention and uh, patience as we do some flipping around today. The title of today's message comes from this text in Matthew. It's called Greater Than Jonah. Today's sermon is entitled Greater Than Jonah. And it really reflects the truth that Jonah himself reflects Jesus Christ. Jesus says that there is one who has come, speaking of himself, who is greater. He surpasses Jonah. Jonah is surpassed in Jesus Christ. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to behold the glory of Christ foretold in Jonah and exceeded in fulfillment in Jesus. 
the glory of Christ foretold in type, that is to say, and exceeded in antitype. Type means something that has gone before, that is a picture. It contains information about what is to come. Antitype means that which corresponds to that symbol or that which went before, the fulfillment. If Jonah is the type, Christ is the antitype. And so that will be a little bit of structure, background, theology for this message today. So if you are able, would you stand with me with your Bible open to Matthew 12 out of reverence for the Holy Word of God and let us consider our Lord's own words about the prophetic ministry of Jonah. We begin our reading this morning in verse 38. Here is the Holy Word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In our text today, as we have seen, our introductory text at least, in Matthew 12, Jesus himself identifies Jonah and aspects of his experience, that is Jonah's experience, as typological, as symbolic of Christ himself. Matthew 12, in fact, provides, therefore, a sort of divine hermeneutical insight, that is to say, a way of interpreting the Scripture a way of interpreting the Scripture that comes from Christ Himself. So we know it's the best possible way to read into some of the deep insights into a book, into a message, a testimony, the prophetic record of one like Jonah. As Jesus Himself points out a unique aspect of divine revelation, namely, that the record of God's dealings with His people through His prophets, like Jonah, foretells the coming Messiah. Jesus declares, furthermore, in Matthew 12, to the obstinate hearers of His day, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In the genius of God, even in the spectacular means of chastisement that God used, He chose, for his recalcitrant prophet, namely Jonah. That is to say, Jonah was swallowed by a fish, partly because of the consequence of his sin. It was an instrument of salvation for him, but it was also an instrument of correction. Yet in the genius of God, this spectacular means of salvation and correction becomes a foreshadowing, becomes a prophetic picture, a type of the death and resurrection of the true prophet, priest, and king to come, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord. And while Jonah's account speaks of the coming one, we remark in our text today and in, a review, in an overview of Jonah that although he spoke of Christ, there is nevertheless a contrast between the type and antitype. This contrast remains. That is, said another way, that Jonah's character and ministry is dramatically distinct from Jesus as it displays so much weakness and indeed sin and selfishness, bad attitude. Jonah's story is given to us in the Old Testament and it's full disclosure, really. There's honesty and candor that reveals the frailty, the weakness, the selfish sins of this prophet of God. A mere human, as it, after all, just a man. Called, yes. Amazing results from his ministry, yes. But we see in the record that it wasn't because of Jonah. One of the least likely to be chosen for a task like this by any standard man might use. It was because of God. More than this, it was that which Jonah pointed toward, Jesus Christ, who would come, who would be the answer, ultimately speaking, to the salvation of Nineveh and the salvation of the prophet of God himself. Jonah's own sins were atoned for in the one, on the one, whom he spoke of, whom he prefigured and pictured in his experience in the great fish. History yet cries in Jonah's day, because we see these failures and shortcomings. History yet cried in Jonah's day for someone better, therefore, a sinless son of man, a substitute, a mediator, a prophet, as we said, a priest, a king, who could effectively and finally bear the sins of the people. In light of these truths, the question comes to us today as relevant as it was in Jonah's time. Why would we invest our hope in any lesser claim? Jonah in himself couldn't save us. That is obvious. He wasn't responsible for this miraculous awakening and revival in the city of Nineveh. It's ridiculous and absurd to think this. As we see his attitude following this event, he didn't even want it to happen. So the question is, why would we invest our hope in any claim, any scheme, or any agent lesser than Jesus Christ? The great theme of Jonah, the end of our worship text, as Mark read for us today, is salvation belongs to the Lord. The exclusive proprietary rights to hope for the future, to salvation, is in the hand of the Lord. And He is jealous for His glory. He shares it with no other. So at the end of the story of Jonah, the only hero left standing is Christ Himself. Jonah has a lackluster record as the story closes as we've seen, yet Christ shines all the brighter. Jonah himself proclaims as much, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the record of Jonah we see ultimately in the course of redemptive history, in the course of Scripture, is surpassed by Christ. Years later, centuries later, when the Messiah would come, the Messiah who would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, the record showed that Jesus himself had arrived. The one that was greater than Jonah had come. That is the context with which I would like to explore and just briefly touch upon an overview of Jonah today. Let us note how the record of Jonah is surpassed in Christ. Let's do this by looking just briefly at four chapters of Jonah. You can turn back to the minor prophet with me. 
as we see different highlights in the text where the record of Jonah is paralleled by Christ in some way, but infinitely surpassed in glory. Behold, the glory of Christ, therefore, foretold and exceeded in the type and the fulfillment. Let's consider this under three main points this morning. We'll consider uh, chapter 1 under the theme, over the sea. That which happens over the sea or on the sea, you could say. Secondly, let's consider what happens under the sea. Thirdly, uh, Jonah's prophetic ministry. And fourthly, God's will and decree. Let us notice how the record of Jonah surpassed in Christ in these different chapters of Jonah's record. In the book of Jonah, in verse 1, we have the following. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. How did Jonah respond? Children, do you remember? Did Jonah go to Nineveh right away? Was he obedient? Or did Jonah do something else? He did something else, didn't he? Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He ran away, the opposite direction. Jonah set his sail on a ship which launched at Joppa for a place approximately 2,500 miles away from where he was supposed to be. He paid the fare. He went on board, verse 3 tells us. And he went to go with these sailors to Tarshish. And this phrase, Jonah's intent, illustrates is illustrated by this absurd phrase, from the presence of the Lord, as if you can do such a thing. Can you run away from God? The faster you run, have you put any distance between you and the Lord? Absolutely not. Jonah learns this lesson the hard way. He learns this over the sea. You know what happens next, verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Pausing there, Jonah's experience over the sea was a traumatic one indeed. All of the sudden, there's this crisis, this chaos that happens. As we take note of the sea and its significance at this time, think of the worldview. I'll maybe give you just a little historical background. The sea in Near Eastern ancient thought really pictured chaos, elements out of control. This aspect of life that was kind of the fate the future, that which could rise up in an instant and kill you. The elements of nature stirred in unpredictable seas spoke of unmitigated, uncontrolled chaos, a terrifying fate, a horrific authority of chance events beyond our control and understanding. That's what the sea was to the mind, certainly, of the sailors, to anyone who didn't know who controlled it. Did Jonah have any control over the sea? Absolutely not. Could the sailors do anything about this? Absolutely not. They do what they can, which is futile. They throw cargo, they hurl cargo that was in the ship into the sea, verse 5, to lighten it uh, for them. And notice where Jonah is. He's gone down to the inner part of the ship, and he's lain down and was fast asleep. How does Jonah face his calling? As we see the record of Jonah, God gives him instructions. Difficult, yes, but if he has faith in his Lord, he should realize that God will protect him and equip him for this call. Here's the difficult call. Go to a city that hasn't heard of Yahweh so far as you know, that worships their God with a whole lot of confidence because they're warlike and successful in their military campaigns, and tell them if they don't repent, that's implied, 
just tell them they'll be destroyed. How will that word go over? How will that message be received by this uh, you know, enemy kingdom and by this great city of that time? We can imagine that this calling was something that Jonah would rather run away from than to obey. So in facing his calling, when saddled with this apparently overwhelming task, he rises to flee to Tarshish. Let's consider Jesus Christ, the greater one than Jonah. Jesus Christ was faced with an even more overwhelming task. Infinitely more so, you could say, by every possible fathomable measure. Jesus Christ was given the task to bear the sins of mankind, to set his face toward a city as well. And the scriptures say he did so with a resolve and a commitment to the will of the Father that was unwavering and, if you will, laser-focused. Listen to the greater Listen to the greater one than Jonah, if you will, or the corresponding testimony of Jesus when faced with a great task in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 20, 17, Jesus pauses in his ministry and interaction with the disciples to bring to their attention the following. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is faced, he's saddled with this overwhelming task. He is instructed by the will of the Father to go to Jerusalem, because now is the appointed time for his great work of salvation. His great work of obedience to the Father. And what is this work? It is going to the cross, going to Calvary. Setting his face towards the environment, towards the people, towards the powers, towards the circumstances which will condemn him, deliver him over to the enemy, the enemies and the despised ones, the Gentiles that will mock him. Beat him, flog him, and crucify him. Yet we see the record of Jonah is surpassed by Christ. He did not run from the call. Jesus said that just in one word, he could call for legions of angels to destroy his enemies. Why did he keep his mouth closed in his greatest hour of need? It is because there was a greater purpose still than his own safety, than his own preferences. And this greatest purpose of all was the will of the Father that was laid out before time began to pay the necessary sacrificial price to atone for the sins of all who had come into the kingdom in due course. And so he set his face toward Jerusalem. And the record of Jesus in this way surpasses the record of Jonah. Thank the Lord that Jesus Christ our Savior did not flee from the great task of taking on the burden of our sin and suffering for the same. Back in Jonah, we see 
his response to this crisis, his demeanor, if you will, or his poise or his state of mind in the midst of this over-the-sea experience. He's sleeping. It's crazy. The mariners were afraid. They each cried out to his God. They hurled this cargo overboard. They're looking for every possible last-ditch effort to give them the upper hand over these storms that threatened to crush their bow into so many splinters. But where's Jonah? Verse 5 continues, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And this is not a sleep of confidence. This is not a sleep of faith. As we see in the context here and also as I'm told in the original language, this is more like a depression. This is more like an escape. Jonah is no doubt dealing with this crushing weight of guilt, knowing he's attempting the impossible, run away from the presence of the Lord, also knowing that he has no ultimate reason to fear what God has told him to do. And here he is, without any good excuse, sailing away from God's purposes for him. And so he's shutting down. And in his mind, in his emotions, and in his soul, he is trying to run away from God, not only on the waves of the Mediterranean, but also in his soul trying to place distance before him and God, sinking into this stupor and this sleep of escape. This is Jonah's demeanor in crisis. Jonah, he comes to his senses somewhat after he is awakened. The captain comes down to him and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Rise, call out to your God. Maybe the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah wakes up, he rubs the sleep of apostasy out of his eyes, he rubs away some of the depression and this futility of his running, and he says, he confesses in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, Behold, he had told them. Jonah recognizes that this sea is in a state of chaos and storm because of him. He knows that a sovereign God has sent this storm to chastise him because he has broken covenant with his God, because he is in sin, and he's running away from the presence of the only place of hope and calm in the midst of life's dire circumstances, And so he begins to come around. In Mark 4, in the greater example of Jesus Christ, we see a trial or we see a circumstance where Jesus himself is over the waters, over the seas. And the greater one than Jonah, in this testimony, the differences, the distinction couldn't be any more stark. It's interesting to note these parables or parallels, excuse me, especially because Jesus himself was asleep at the time in a different uh, sense, however. And uh, I think I said uh, Mark 4, that may not be the text I'm looking for. However, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. (laughs) On that day, thank you. When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him, or it took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. 
and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We notice a parallel here. But this sleep is of a different sort. This is the kind of sleep that the Lord of heaven and earth, that the Lord of the so- uh, and sovereign of the seas can indulge even though waves are crashing upon the vessel that he is riding in. And we see this evidenced for us in his response. He awoke in verse 49 and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Thus we see in the stark contrast, whereas Jonah was subject to the waves and the sea because of his sin, the waves of the sea were subject subject to Jesus Christ because he was their Lord. He was their creator. Truly the greater one than Jonah had come. And he was proving as much when he spoke a word, a commandment, and even the wind and the seas obeyed him. And truly, this was a wake-up call for the disciples in the boat as they see this one who they thought was an amazing man for sure, but now are blown away by this evidence of his power. He is so much more. Could this be God himself? Could this be God in flesh? How else do we explain the elements of nature obeying his authoritative command. More than this, Jesus, the greater one than Jonah, walks upon the seas. In other places, we see his evidence, evidenced here, his sovereign control, even over the seemingly unmitigated chaotic elements of nature, when he treads upon the waves. That which would drown us would be our undoing, is firm footing underneath his sovereign, his divine feet. Praise the Lord. How is this crisis managed? Well, Jonah is thrown overboard to calm the sea. The sinner throws himself upon the mercy of God into the ocean. And the sea, as you, as you know, was immediately calm. Nevertheless, verse 13, back in Jonah 1, the men rowed hard to get back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The sea was calmed when the sinner threw himself the mercy of God. Jonah was tossed overboard. The greater one than Jonah arrived, Jesus Christ, the sinless God-man. He commands the sea, peace be still, and nature proved to be at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Bow before its creator. Thus we see in this over-the-sea record how far surpassed the, the testimony of the prophet of Jonah is in Jesus Christ. And this moves us to chapter 2, what happens under the sea. The Lord appoints a great fish recall, to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish. How long? Three days and three nights. 
This was the consequence for Jonah's sin. Also, it was the instrument of salvation. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this corresponds, we have already discovered in our introductory text this morning in Matthew 12, with how long Jesus was in the grave. Now, I asked my uh, children this week as we were going through family devotions, how long was Jonah in the belly of the whale, just like I asked you, and they got it right as well, all the way down to the three-year-old. Three days and three nights. But I have another question to ask, ask you this morning. Why was Jonah in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? Well, the answer has to do with the aim of this message. Behold the glory of Christ foretold and exceeded in type and fulfillment. The reason, ultimately speaking, that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights is because it prophetically foretold that Jesus Christ himself would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. These were sovereign purposes in God's revelation, perhaps unbeknownst to even Jonah himself at the time or those who read this record until when? Until the greater than Jonah arrived and spoke as much and said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus Christ spent this time, these three days and nights, in the belly of the earth, as it were, in the heart of the grave, for Jonah's sin, and for yours, and for mine. Let me go further and say it this way. If this event had not happened, what the experience of Jonah prefigured, if Jesus had not spent this time in the grave, then Jonah would not have received salvation. There would have been no hope for Nineveh, no hope for Jonah, no hope for you, no hope for me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it was secured one way and one way only. By the sinless prophet, the one who was to come, the greater than Jonah, who would surpass him in glory when he was killed for our sins, for Jonah's sins, for the sins of Nineveh, and spent those ne that necessary time paying for them, as it were, in the heart of the earth. What else happens under the sea Jonah is swallowed by a fish in this circumstance, this change of events, this sovereign means of salvation allows him to cry out. This is our worship text today. He cries out to the Lord out of his distress. The Lord answers him out of the belly of Sheol, that is hell, you could say, or death, grave, judgment, certain doom, dead to rights. Out of the belly of this circumstance, Jonah says, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me, and all your waves crashed over me. He closes his confession and his worship song of thankfulness in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Again, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah cries out, and his, prayers are, his cries are heard. We've asked the question in the course of our study, who is Jonah's priest? Because he said, his prayers go forward through to the temple. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He indicates, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Verse 7, 
His prayer was heard, yet Jonah was not at the temple at this time. He was in the belly of a whale, untold feet beneath the Mediterranean, swimming around in the belly of a great beast. Who would represent him in the temple? Who is the priest that heard his plea? Who represented him during that time? Jonah has faith that someone did. Who was it? It was the greater to come. Jonah's priest was Jesus Christ to come. The record of Jonah is surpassed in Christ. Only Christ can represent us before the Father. Only He is the fulfillment of what the temple itself typified. We're talking type and anti-type this morning. What the temple was in type, Christ Himself was in anti-type. What the high priest was in type or symbol of old was fulfilled in who Christ is in the future. And so to this future Messiah, Jonah cries from his watery grave, as it were, and his prayers are heard. Jonah calls out. Jesus also cries out in his death, near-death experience. His near-death experience is different. Why? Because he does not escape the judgment for Jonah's sin, for our sin, and again for the sins of Nineveh. He does cry out. He feels the weight of the anguish in these moments. We pick up on his language as we read in the Gospels, where he cried out in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Going a little further, he fell on his face in verse 39 and prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He prays again, asking if there be any way. Again, he prays a second time, 42. He went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And as he is suffering in this time, in his near-death experience, the greater one than Jonah is not saved from the circumstances as it were. There is not another way provided. A fish was provided for Jonah to save him from hell he deserved, as it were, from the grave that he had earned in his sin. But when Jesus, the sinless one, was facing his near-death experience, when he cried out, if there be any other way, a way was not provided. And this was the event, let me remind you, that is the cross upon which Jonah's prayer could be answered. Because Jesus was resolved to follow obediently the will of God and to take on the sin of the world and the consequences of God's wrath that that sin deserved. Jonah could be saved. You and I can be saved. Hallelujah. The story doesn't end there for Jonah nor for Jesus. The end of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and Jonah's, in Jonah's account and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Life, life after trauma, almost a resurrection, a new lease on life, you could certainly say at least that much, was pictured in Jonah. Jonah was delivered from the belly of the fish and with his new lease on life, he then follows the word of the Lord which came to him a second time, commanding him to go to Nineveh and bring the message, the word to the pagans. And so he does so. Jesus, praise be to God, is also delivered from the heart of the earth. But this is a true resurrection. When the bonds of the grave can no longer contain the glory of God made flesh, we find on resurrection morning, 
With the disciples in the record, an empty tomb. Praise the Lord. The end of the book of Matthew, we pick up on uh, some of these accounts in chapter 28. It was after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week and the Marys are going to try to approach the tomb to anoint the body and so forth. There's a great earthquake and an angel descends and he has an announcement. Verse 5, he said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And so Jesus Christ himself was resurrected three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the heart of the earth, as it were. But his resurrection was the first fruits of our own. And again, we look forward to life after the trauma of this earth and our physical death, assured because Christ, champion, our champion, rose victorious over death and the grave and the consequences of sin on the third day when he rose. The record of Jonah far surpasses it is far surpassed in the record of Christ. Number three this morning, and more briefly, we see Jonah's prophetic ministry in chapter three of Jonah's, of Jonah's account. He, of course, obeys the Lord. He begins to preach, yet 40 days, his eight-word sermon, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse six, the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes issued a proclamation and published throughout all Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And of course, God does. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah proclaims his message, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His message is one of judgment from Almighty God for Gentile city. Jesus comes and he proclaims his message. He's led by the Father to initiate his ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And verse 17 records, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. How much surpassed was the message of Jesus Christ and those eight words of pending doom that Jonah decreed over the Gentile city? In the message of Jesus unfolding through the course of his entire ministry, introduced by these words in Matthew 4.17, we find repentance and faith is proclaimed in himself, and his kingdom's arrival is announced. And the unbelieving Jews are judicially hardened. They do not hear the message. And this, yet this message, nevertheless, has a staying power all of its own by the power of God that would be echoed forward by His disciples, the apostolic generation, the early church, the missionary movements through the course of the ages, and, and so much so that today, 2,000 years removed, and many nations separated from the original words of Jesus Christ, we read them today and they burn within us with a ring of truth and hope of salvation because the message of Jesus Christ is redeeming the lost even today. And it will continue, saints, circumventing the globe, 
till every tribe, tongue, and nation can boast among them a representative people who give praise to His holy name. And His message will not be silenced until the fullness of the elect are come in and the realms of glory are populated with the myriads and multitudes who proclaim with the sound of rushing mighty waters the praises of our Lord pictured in the book of Revelation. This is the prophetic ministry of Jesus. Eight words of judgment give way to salvation and glorious triumph and a message of hope and salvation in the gospel that we appreciate even this morning and has changed our hearts if you are in him today. What is the significance of the ministry of Jonah versus the significance of the ministry of Christ? Well, Jonah had a significant ministry. There was a great and immediate revival but again, it wasn't due to his, him. He, he didn't even want the revival. We learn that Jonah had nothing to do with this. In the first verse of the next chapter, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The significance of Jonah's ministry was the glory of it all rests on the Lord because this prophet with a bad attitude could care less. In fact, he was angry that God had saved his, these 120,000. The ministry. In fact, we could go further and say that the significance of Jonah's ministry actually served the eventual ministry of Christ. You recall in Matthew 12, there's a prophecy. One day the men of Nineveh, these 120,000 strong who were saved, will rise up in judgment against this obstinate people. In other words, think of it this way. The ministry of Jonah prepared in the word of the Lord, hearing, uh, being heard in the ears of the pagans, it prepared uh, thousands and thousands of legal witnesses to stand at the last day condemning and showing God's glory and judging uh, according to his righteous precepts all in every generation who are obstinate to the message of the gospel. Part of the purpose of Jonah's ministry was to assemble something of a celestial jury who will stand before the great white throne and say, we heard eight words and bowed before the Lord of glory. You had this entire written revelation. You are without excuse. We had no history of the patriarchs and the prophets who had gone before. And no prophet had visited us prior. We were lost and without hope. And a ragged man with a bad attitude told us we'd be destroyed and we repented. And so you will be condemned to hell eternal because one greater than Jonah came, Jesus Christ. We sometimes wish that God would do amazing miracles in our day. If we could just see a resurrection from the dead, maybe my friend, my relative, my family member who's a professed atheist would open their eyes and see that God is real. Jesus himself says, they have the prophets. They have Moses. If one comes back from the dead, if they, th that it won't do it. It's not for lack of spectacular signs. Jesus said it is a generation that is wicked that seeks a sign. And for the generation that reserves the right to be skeptical because Christ hasn't come on their terms or God hasn't made himself known on their terms, that is a fearful place to be. The message of Jonah and the message of Christ is throw yourself at the mercy of God. 
Throw yourself overboard into the sea of his rescue. He will prepare a fish, as it were, to save you in the case of Jonah. This picture is even more stark in its fulfillment as we see, throw yourself at the mercy of God, and the one who survived the grave will save you with him, be crucified with him, raised with him, saved by his saving power. This is the ministry of Jonah and Jesus compared, and the significance we see only getting greater as the greater than Jonah arrives. Finally this morning, let us consider God's will and decree. Jonah was upset. He was disillusioned. He was discontent with God's will. He didn't like what God had planned. He resents the will of God in the salvation of the city. He says in this other prayer, which is much less of a glorious prayer than chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 2, he prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Ah, Lord is so patient. He is so compassionate with his servants, even when they are such idiots. As we see in this record, I mean, as if the graciousness of God, His mercy, His slowness to anger, His steadfast love, and relenting from disaster is a bad thing. Wow. If God wasn't all those things, Jonah would be in hell today. But because God is those things, even when Jonah was angry with the will of God, things didn't shake out as he preferred. God was still gentle in correcting His servant asking him this probing question, do you do well to be angry? And continuing to prepare sovereign, miraculous things from nature itself to guide his servant to teach him a lesson. Now, Jonah had a tough time submitting to the will of God. That is clear from the text. However, Jesus, the greater than Jonah, submitted to the will of God to the nth degree. He was the perfect man. He kept the law to the T. His righteousness, therefore, is imputed to all who follow Him and trust in His atoning blood for their salvation. We see the record of Jesus submitting to the will of God. As He says the following in Matthew 26, 36. Again, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see the record here. Again, reading, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then what is the final phrase in verse 39? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. A second time he prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it. Again, these four significant words, Your will be done. Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father at every juncture in his ministry, whether it was those triumphal moments where water turns into wine and those looking on are aghast with the power of his miracles whether it was at the precipice of his agonizing death when the whole countryside, as it were, would turn against him in mockery and derision, and he would face the authorities of the day and be, humili- and, and to be humiliated, stripped of his earthly dignity, and hung upon a cruel instrument of torture as he is executed in Rome's gruesome style on an instrument of capital punishment, the cross. Yet in every situation, Jesus submits 
to the will of the Father. And this will was what must be done, the necessary, the necessary things that God had prepared for the salvation of the elect. God's will and decree, Jonah continues to wrestle all the way to the end of his book. He despises his own life motivated by self-pity. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. In self-pity, kind of like the difference between Jonah's sleep and Jesus' sleep in the boat, we see Jonah's willingness to take his own life or to uh, be resolved to die versus Jesus. Uh, the contrast couldn't be more stark. It is better for me to die than to live again, he says in verse 8. And this when uh, the sun was beating down on his head because God had caused the plant to wither. Under these very tiny trials, Jonah was ready to throw in the towel and in his despair and in his self-pity, he was motivated to just say, that's it, I'm done with life. Life does not have any purpose for living. This was the context which Jonah was willing to lay down his life for and meaningless self-pity. However, Jesus lays down his life as a ransom for many. When it came time for Jesus to offer his life, it was in a whole different attitude. Again, the contrast so stark that it is shocking as we read the accounts. And just in closing, and to touch once again on the greater than Jonah, in Matthew 20, 26, Jesus is instructing the disciples and he says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whatever be first among you must be your slave. And he holds himself out as the example of this in verse 28. Sacrificial love evident in his work on Calvary. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The record of Jonah closes with some interesting self-reflection. Jonah is... In, in his introspection has really fallen short of the standard of a hero prophet and he's proving, it, proving himself to be uh, a tool in God's hands against the odds because of his heart, his attitude that God is pleased to use us even in our frailty for his great glory. Praise his name. However, the will of God nevertheless prospers in the hand of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the verse I would like to close with this morning in our overview message comes from Isaiah 53. We've touched upon these verses recently. Notice 53 verse 10, speaking of our Christ, our Lord. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord didn't prosper very much in Jonah's hand. Although there were brief flashes of obedience, there was also these moments of weakness, stumbling, sin, and where Jonah was really incapacitated for usefulness for the kingdom because of his own frailty. However, in the hand of Christ, in the nail-scarred palm of our Lord, the will of the Lord prospered, and it prospers yet today, saints. 
he will not lose a single one of his own. And the rewards of his suffering are assured him because of his perfect obedience and sufficient sacrifice. In Isaiah 53, 11, it continues the word of God and prophetically proclaiming out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, be see, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In, this, in his, that is Jesus Christ's, absolute submission, even unto death, so the will of God forever prospers in his hand. Far beyond even the occasion of his earthly ministry, the will of God is prospering in his hand even today as the message of the cross has touched your heart and mine and led you to repentance and faith in his saving work alone. And in this we see truly, not just in the scriptures, but also if you are a believer today in your own experience, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious message of your holy word that ties all these beautiful threads of history together in a tapestry of your sovereign weaving that no man could ever hope to accomplish and could not even understand if the Holy Spirit did not enlighten the ears of their hearing to the truths contained in your holy word. Open our eyes to see the beautiful tapestry of your sovereignty weaving together the threads of history and a glorious picture of your creative power and the atonement of the lost and in the glorification of the Godhead unto the praise of your great name. Lord, I pray as we look back upon this year and the record of your faithfulness unto us, we would see that tapestry with extra threads even in our own lives. Lord Jesus, in such glorious ways, preserving us, encouraging us, strengthening us, equipping us, and setting our feet upon a path of glorification, even as we look to be raised from the dead one day. And in the meantime, may you use your word, even as it's proclaimed this day, to transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have seen him in his holy word. May he be evident through our lives especially this year as we seek to bring glory to your name by growing in the obedience, the faith among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.